Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Let's see, what is this furnace? No, it's not a furnace, obviously. I know what a furnace is. I can't do it anymore. This really may not be time anymore. Really, you're just sucking the life out of my ability to talk. ReSound is a remix of music, found sound, sound bites, and documentaries broadcast worldwide, and even documentaries that were almost not broadcast at all. Coming up, the story behind the story, the story before the story, the story after the story, and the story that you almost didn't get to hear from one of the leading producers in public radio. Stay with us. I think one of the difficulties in speaking language now is that I just miss and lose tremendous amounts of water. Not water, just words. Not water, words. And uh, this is not good. This is not good whatsoever. Where do I turn this off? 48-year-old Stuart Selman was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor in 2004. He kept an audio diary during his last months to leave a record for his wife, Rebecca, and their two children. Producer Mary Beth Kirshner sifted through 50 hours of his diary entries, but still didn't feel that she could make a radio story out of it. It just didn't tell the whole story. So Kirshner interviewed Selman's wife, who turned out to be much more candid than Stewart about the last year of his life. Kirshner's documentary, A Year to Live, A Year to Die, is the culmination of her three-year collaboration with Selman, his wife Rebecca, and their family. After we listen to this piece that's arresting, unsettling, and masterful, we'll hear from both Mary Beth and Rebecca about the unusual and not always pleasant process that went into creating it. Here is A Year to Live, A Year to Die. Stuart Selman started recording his audio diary on February 22, 2003. His first entry was made while he was in the hospital awaiting tests, awake and alone in his room at two in the morning. It's been two weeks since he first learned about his brain tumor. We only live about five minutes from where the CAT scan was done, and I, you know, I was kind of keeping it together. And you know, this was a big deal. I drove home, and you know, my kids were downstairs uh, playing a game, and you know, I went upstairs, and uh, you know, I saw my wife, and you know, I just started crying. Yeah, I remember that. Stewart's wife, Rebecca Peterson, is hearing these tapes for the first time. She says she hasn't felt ready to listen to them until now. It's been almost a year since Stewart died. I remember that him just coming home and, like, the door slamming before the door even, I think, slammed. He was yelling out my name and bounding up the stairs. And, you know, he just held me, and I was like, what, what, what can it be? Rebecca Peterson and Stuart Selman met 14 years before in the highlands of Guatemala. Rebecca was teaching English. Stuart was there while traveling. At Stuart's memorial service, Rebecca told the story of their very first meeting. Imagine my surprise 14 years ago in March 
when from a darkened doorway at a Spanish language school where I worked in Guatemala, I opened the door to a brilliant blue sky silhouetting a young tanned man with the most luminous green eyes I had ever seen asking for me. Stewart quickly passed Rebecca's ultimate test of a future husband, imagining what conversations would be like with him after 10 years of marriage. With Stewart, she says, she knew they would always be easy and interesting. I felt a sense of warmth, of connection, of gentleness that really impressed me. And 11 years later, their life, now with two children, was all she had imagined. But everything changed so quickly that last year. This entry is from the first week of Stewart's diary in February 2003. I don't feel any bitterness about why me getting a tumor. As I've gotten older, you know more and more people that bad things have happened to, and it's sort of, gosh, it can't always be the other guy. Rebecca Peterson had been worrying about her husband, Stuart, for months. He'd started getting migraines almost weekly. Stress, they both thought, was the likely cause. But the headaches kept coming, stress or no stress. That's when Stuart's doctor suggested the CAT scan. Their follow-up visit with the neurologist still haunts Rebecca to this day. He wasn't mean about it. He was very compassionate about it. But then he said... You know, I've seen families, a lot of families go through this, and there's a lot of different ways that people handle it. But there's some families who are able to pull together and to achieve this kind of transcendence, and transcendence was the word he used, where they go through their grief and their anger and everything else, but, you know, they really have something precious that they hold on to in the end. And I think one of the things that I feel worst about (laughs) is the fact that I never felt anything like transcendence. I never achieved anything like that with my family. I mean, instead of things sort of coming together and us having this wonderful, glowing, transcendental experience, it was really quite the opposite. Things just kind of dissolved and got down to a very, very basic kind of survival level. At that same visit, Stuart and Rebecca also learned that his tumor was rapidly growing. It was now the size of a golf ball behind his left ear and would have to come out immediately. Stewart's Diary, February 26th. Hi. It's about uh, a quarter to seven. I've been brought down to my room to like a pre-op room. Rebecca's here with me. She's been rubbing my tummy, which makes me feel really, really, really good. You know, it's the best thing I want to see before I go into surgery. The surgeon got most of the tumor, but with the malignancy in the brain, even if the tiniest amount of cancer cells are left behind, there's almost certainty of recurrence. Post-surgery and on steroids, Rebecca remembers she first started noticing changes in Stuart. The day that I drove him home from the hospital, I was driving him home in the van, and, uh, you know, I'd mentioned to him that a friend of ours had recommended a book about a doctor who had, you know, had a brain tumor and had tried some, you know, different things, and would it be interesting to go get it? And he just exploded into a rage at me. He was screaming so loud at me in that van that I had to pull it over and park it because I just couldn't drive it anymore. I was, I was like trembling. I don't know who brought this up, but I flipped out. Stewart's Diary, March 5th. And we've been married like, how long? Like, it's 11 years, 11 years last November. In the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes, we probably yelled at each other more intensely and maybe with more passion than we had in the previous 11 years combined. Rebecca says that ride home was the first sign that they were entering new territory. The drugs, the surgery, the radiation, and the ever-growing tumor were taking over. He came home, and we continued to have that argument. He ended up, like, 
kicking the door in the bathroom and like kicking it practically off the hinge. I mean, it was just a level of anger and violence that I had just never seen in him. Stewart was adamant. He had no interest in books about his cancer. Instead, he was reading about stone walls and wrought iron fences, projects he'd always wanted to finish around the house. Stewart was a home indoor air quality consultant and had a background in construction. In his diary on March 24th, Stewart explained that these projects felt more therapeutic. I was talking to Rebecca about it a little bit, especially as, as I build these things. I'd really like the home to just be part of uh, my family's home for the uh, foreseeable future. In some ways, uh, I think I'm building a monument to myself. And when friends came to visit, and there were many visitors from near and far, they were often recruited to help with the house. On occasion, Stuart would take along his tape recorder. You're one of the best workers I've had so far. We may keep you an extra week. (laughs) One of the things that that really ticked me off to no end was the amount of time Stuart wanted to spend working on the house. What was good for Stuart, throwing himself into home projects, wasn't necessarily good for the rest of the family. Rebecca hears Stuart's version and remembers things very differently. I had this fight going on inside of me. I wanted to say, you know, why can't you be more helpful around the house? If you've got the energy to work on the house like this, why can't you do the dishes and pick things up and clean? Just do something to help me out because here I am, I'm struggling, I'm going to work every day, I'm coming home, I'm trying to manage the kids. I was dying under the weight of all that and then, you know, the worry and the concern about what was going on with him. And then there were the kids. Rebecca and Stuart had two young children, Dahlia, age eight, and Noah, ten. Have I woken you up, Noah? Stuart would often wake up in the middle of the night, unable to sleep, and move into a guest bedroom to record his diary. On occasion, Noah or Dahlia would wander in and lie with him on the spare futon. Stuart's diary, April 12th. Did I wake you up? Say good morning. Good morning. How did you sleep tonight? Did you hear the thunder? In the wee hours, Stuart would often tell the kids stories until they fell back to sleep, stories he wanted them to remember about him, like how he became a cowboy for a short while and led a 20-mile cattle drive. But Dahlia was more intrigued with the present from Stuart's diary on May 1st. Dahlia's really, really into my big scars and just really wants everybody to see them. Noah, on the other hand, uh, doesn't want to see them, and uh, you know that's fine because I, I don't particularly like looking at them either. Stuart and the kids had more time together since Stuart quit work. But Rebecca recalls his relationship with their children was slowly changing, too. There were many, many days when you know I'd either get calls on my way home from work or at work, or as soon as I pulled the car up, you know, to the house, kids were running out the door and saying, "Mom, you know, Daddy's being mean to us." And one morning, it really came to a head. Rebecca remembers Noah was having a tough morning, arguing with his dad before school. And when Stuart went out to pick up the morning paper, Noah swung open the screen door and almost hit his dad in the face. You know, which, granted would enrage anybody. But he grabbed Noah by the scruff of the neck and swung him around and, like, laid him down and just, like, sat on top of him and said, you know, like, don't you ever even think of doing that again and just really scared the crap out of him. And at that moment, I was really scared and really angry, and I, you know, took the kids. It was time to go to the bus. I took the kids to the bus stop, and I came back home, and I went upstairs, and I just screamed at him, and I said, don't you ever do that again to any of my kids because I will send you out of this house and you will die a lonely man. 
And, um, of course, I regretted that <laughs> after I said it. But I had to let him know that, you know, his behavior was just getting more and more extreme. The steroids. On them, they made Stuart manic. Rebecca remembers Stuart was able to single-handedly lift up an old washer-dryer and walk it to the curb to be picked up as trash. But off them, he was lethargic and depressed. Stuart's diary, June 3rd, six months after his diagnosis. My, my steroids have been reduced, um, and they, they may be eliminated. That would be good. Oh, gosh, well, I'm, I'm forgetting here. You know, for my uh, seizures, uh, the... Uh, See, I do lose words. Um. Stewart's tumor was slowly growing back and was gradually taking away his speech. The tumor, the steroids, the radiation. Rebecca didn't know what to blame for all the changes in Stewart, including the paranoia. He was convinced that a neighbor of ours who lives down the street had come into our house and had started doing things in our house, like like changing the wiring or taking his slippers and hidden them or other things. And this person has never been in our house. And he would just say, no, you're wrong. I know she was here. Rebecca occasionally took walks with neighbors, trying to make sense of what was happening. But mostly, she was quietly keeping stories like these to herself. Eventually, she started looking online for support. I would read stories like that all the time of people who were just dealing with these, you know, wild emotional, behavioral, and all other kinds of problems that they were just struggling to try to, you know, cope with. And some people, you know, I would read, you know, these beautiful stories about people, you know, ending their, you know, 30, 40 year marriages. And it was just so beautiful how they, you know, they just loved each other, you know, right out of existence. And I was just thinking, God, you know, why isn't that happening to me? Why isn't that going on in my life? Instead, Rebecca says Stuart and his illness pushed her further away. I mean, there were a lot of times when he wanted to divorce me. He would just get so angry when I would try to tell him that his perceptions of things were wrong. He would just say, we should just get a divorce, you know, and I will just go away and, you know, you can do whatever. But, you know, I just don't want to be around you anymore. And um, that was really hard. Eventually, Rebecca decided to take a leave from work. It was too much to keep up with the kids and home and alternative treatments for Stuart's tumor. But Rebecca remembers the tension between them only grew. Sometimes we'd be out and he'd get ticked off with me about something and he'd just start dressing me down right in public, you know. And um, I, I didn't know what to do. And at that point, we were seeing some therapists, speech therapists and physical therapists because he began to lose sensation in one of his legs, which was causing him a lot of mobility problems. And sometimes he'd go in, and he'd start talking to them about our relationship issues and saying, you know, Rebecca's doing this and this and this. And I'd, say, I'd have to say, you know, honey, she's not really here to hear that. You, she's here to help you with your movement. But I knew they had nothing but sympathy for me. <laughs> and they would hand me little notes and say, you know, try calling this number, you know, call this social worker, do this agency. And, you know, it was scary. It was terrifying. One of the most difficult moments came one evening about eight months into Stuart's illness when her father-in-law was visiting. Rebecca says she was trying to stay out of an argument Stuart and his dad were having about politics, trying not to incite Stuart to any further anger. And um, he accused me of being, you know, a coward, and he was just getting really worked up about it. And at one point, I just had to take the kids upstairs because they were, you know, wandering around the house. This was in the evening. And we all sat in the bathroom. We closed the door and we were just... Huddling, and I had to say, you know, your dad is not thinking right. And um, 
I want you to be careful around him. You know, I know that now he can't move around very fast because of his leg. And I know you could get away if he ever tried to hurt you, but you know, I want you to know that this is not him. It's just, you know, it's the brain tumor. And I remember Noah saying, God, how can you let him talk to you like that? How can you let him treat you like that? And I said, it's, it's just not him. Stewart gradually started losing his ability to talk. The doctors said nothing could keep the tumor from growing, so they decided to bring in hospice care. I think one of the difficulties in speaking language now is that I just miss and lose tremendous amounts of water. Not water. (laughs) Just words. Not water. Words. And uh, this is not good. This is not good whatsoever. I can't even talk English anymore. This really stinks. Let's see, what is this? Furnace? No, it's not a furnace, obviously. I know what a furnace is. Um, I can't do it anymore. This really may not be time anymore. Really, you're just sucking the life out of my ability to talk. Where do I turn this off? That was Stewart's last diary entry, November 20th. He died two months later, almost exactly a year after his diagnosis, at home with Rebecca and the kids and surrounded by family and friends. Rebecca says it took her almost a full year after his death to get to the point where she could really feel the loss. This grieving about what I've lost that I've just been having the last couple weeks is, is to really get back to that person that person that I met in Guatemala, that person who I traveled with and, um, you know, just, you know, had wonderful times with. It's taken a long time to, to really put the rest of this nastiness behind me. Rebecca says the turning point for her was a phone call not long after Stuart died from an old boyfriend. Her first boyfriend, actually, from high school, who had heard about Stuart's death through mutual friends. He'd lost both of his parents when they were teenagers in Cincinnati, and they'd broken up in the midst of his grief. They hadn't talked in over 10 years. He's been calling me like once a month or maybe six weeks or something just to check in and see how we're doing. And and then also, you know, I was looking to build this cabinet in my office, and it turns out that he's a cabinet maker. He asked Rebecca to make a drawing of her cabinet and said he'd build it for her. And I said, yeah, but how do we get it here? It turned out that I flew down there to Cincinnati, and we loaded up a truck, and we drove it back, and um, we just fell like head over heels in love with each other once again. Head over heels in love with someone else. And that's what's provoked a flood of grief and love for her late husband. It just, it just boggles the mind. You know, having this emotional thing happened to me has just opened the gate to all kinds of emotional things, other things. And like I said, this grieving that that I have just been furiously avoiding, that I have put up walls and walls and walls just to not feel, all of a sudden I can't do that anymore because I am just blown wide open and I have to feel it. And it's coming out and it's coming out as grief. It's coming out as all the things that, um, you know, that he and I had that were really, really wonderful and the wonderful parts of our relationship and, and the person that he was. And, and that loss, to me, is just much sharper now. When Stewart was keeping his audio diary, he made only one brief entry where he talked about what his death might bring. It was recorded a few weeks after he learned about his brain tumor. 
you know, I mean, who knows what happens to me, like, when, uh, you know, when I die. I mean, maybe there's an afterlife, maybe there isn't, maybe you just sort of uh, return to the earth and uh, your spirit just kind of disperses. I'm not sure. I guess I'll find out. But, you know, how Rebecca's future proceeds is going to be different. I mean, she, let's say we say two years. So she'll be uh, 46, young, still really cute. And uh, I don't know what her life will be like, but it'll be different. It's now been another full year since Rebecca first heard these tapes. Her life is different now. Rebecca says she and her old boyfriend are still a couple, but in separate cities. She's just quit her job and is in search of a new career. A few weeks ago, she celebrated her son Noah's bar mitzvah, an event that was especially painful without Stuart. Stuart was Jewish, not Rebecca. And she says she still finds her thoughts wandering to Stuart daily, in those rare moments when she has some time alone, where she wonders what he would think of her new life. I mean, I still even have certain places in the house that I associate with Stuart. Our third floor, you know, which we were working on finishing as he was dying, you know, I was trying to get that whole space done. And now that it's done, I, you know, I walk to the north window and I always look out that window. And whenever I look out that window, I think of him and I feel like he's right there. Rebecca lost Stuart in so many ways before he died. In her memories, at least, she's now with the husband she knew and is happy to have him back. A Year to Live, A Year to Die, produced by Maribeth Kirshner. Despite three years of collaborating on this deeply personal project, Marybeth and Rebecca had never talked about how the story came together and what considerable difficulties they had to overcome. At the 2007 Third Coast Festival Conference in Chicago, both documentor and documentee sat down together for a discussion, moderated by independent producer Joe Richmond. They dissected, for the very first time, what was going on behind the scenes. Here's an excerpt from their conversation, starting with Mary Beth Kirshner's first impressions of her future subject, Stuart Selman. It's interesting to talk about this in front of... Friend of Rebecca. Um, what did I think? Well, I thought at the beginning, when I first when I met Stuart very briefly, I thought, oh, he's going to be great. He's very funny. He loves to talk. He talks and talks and talks. There, you know, if we have a whole year of, of amazing moments, there's, there's probably going to be some really great material. And periodically I would say, okay, when you have, you know, four or five cassettes full, just send them to me and I'll start listening and I'll give you feedback. And... And um, I would log for hours and hours and hours, and I would think, wow, this is, um, he's very aware of the process, you know, he's very aware that there, he's, this is not as nearly as intimate as I had thought. You'd think with a diary, you'd get greatly intimate material. And it's more of a chronology of what's happening, rather than really kind of living deeply in the moment of what's happening in this last year of his life. And it's almost as though he's not really telling me all that's happening. He's just very aware that there's another audience for this, which is the exact opposite of what you'd expected. So I would call him and say, okay, you know when you were talking about this, that's the perfect moment to just don't be rushed, just tell me more. I mean, Joe and I, we saw each other. I think we saw each other that summer where I was in the middle of logging all this tape thinking, what am I going to do? Because this isn't a story yet. There's nothing about this that sounds very crass. As I say this, it feels like as a storyteller, 
that there's nothing here that's revelatory in any way. I just feel like I, I know all this. To prove her point, producer Mary Beth Kirshner played an example of one of Stewart's audio diary entries that, while interesting, wasn't compelling or revealing enough to be included in the story that she wanted to tell. Rebecca and I went uh, over to the east side here in St. Paul. There was a, you know, it's, it's a ceremony for uh, sitting Shiva, a member of uh, the Mount Zion Synagogue, not someone I knew very well. She died. She had a long-term illness, and uh, and I think, you know, the biggest uh thing about that for me is, you know, I, I really didn't know her or her husband very well. Uh, and they have a son who's uh, Noah's age. And I think it was just, uh, uh, you know, thinking more about, well, you know, you know, here's this 10-year-old who uh, who uh, lost his mother. But it, it, does, it does make you uh, think a little bit. So it's like it's just the beginning of what you think someone would really... Um really have to say about that experience of seeing another child at someone else's memorial service and wondering what the experience would be for your own child. It's like it's just the very beginning of what someone would say, and that's as far as it would go, typically. Rebecca, before, before we sort of talk about how this really be- then became your story, mm. what were you thinking about this process when it was Stuart's diary? Were you aware of when he was recording? Were you supportive? Did you just kind of... What were your, were your thoughts about why he was doing this and how he was doing this? Well, I knew that it, it would appeal to him because I think he, you know, he would do it for lots of reasons. You know, one is to leave something for the kids and all that kind of stuff. I was a little bit resentful, I have to say, about that um, because I felt like he spent more time talking to the recorder than he did to me. So um, it, it was, um, yeah, I felt there was something about that that left me out of the process. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the issues that I spoke about, one of my disappointments about the whole last year was that we didn't connect in that sort of emotional way that I would have liked. And I know there's a lot of reasons for that. But, um, you know, I saw that tape recorder sort of as one thing that got in the way because it was his experience and it was his thing and it you know, he wasn't sharing sort of those pieces with me, or I would I imagine. And, of course, it was surprising to me when you told me that you didn't felt like you didn't have enough material just on what he had, you know, recorded. I was totally surprised about that. But in a one way... Forty hours. <laughs> it's sort of, it sort of confirmed to me that um, he wasn't going down to the deeper emotional levels in any sense. Not even by himself was he doing that, which I think is really interesting. Okay, so it's interesting that you felt that Recorder may have been keeping him a little bit from you, connecting with you. right. But obviously he wasn't connecting with the Recorder so much either. Right. I mean, what did you you think, knowing that he was recording all this stuff, theoretically, very honestly and openly, Mm. and yet you knew there was this whole story happening that wasn't being documented? I think I, I think I thought to myself, you know, that's someday a story I have to tell. And I think, you know, part of the reason that I was able to sit down with Mary Beth and tell, say the things I said is because it was, I just had to. I mean, you know, it's like, it's catharsis. It's, you know, it's that what you go to therapy for. It's that feeling of, of release and, you know, just letting that out. Let's talk about the transition. So when, again, as I said, when it became your story, when... Mary Beth, can you talk about, you got to a point where you felt this just maybe wasn't going to work. 
What could you do about that? Well, it's a horrible feeling to think that someone has done this incredible amount of recording for you for a year's time. Here they are in the middle of dying, and they've done this thing. And as a storyteller, you're thinking, mm, not going to work. You know, it just, you feel like, you feel horrible, you know. And so I felt, of course, this enormous responsibility to him and the commitment that he had made. Yet I, um, I knew I was listening to, you know, I was working with editors and producers who were right there, you know, cheering, cheering us on that we would hoped it would be something that we could put on the air, but it wasn't. So, you know, it's one of those things where you just, I knew that the family, the understanding was that the family would have these tapes forever and that when we were done, regardless of what happened, they would be able to take them and, and keep them for their own. And I said to Emily and to Sean, who I was working with, I said, you know, Rebecca's very quiet, <laughs> but she's really honest. And I, I just have this sense that there are some other things that might be, we might talk about. And Stuart has just died, but I think I should just give this some time. And, and maybe I will play some of this tape for Rebecca and it will provoke some thinking, some honesty, some deeper something. If she hears his voice for the first time or what? I don't know. And that's my last chance to turn this into anything. And that's, that's where we got to. We waited a year. I mean, I remember, I mean, these are the moments you just really feel horribly when you're in the middle of such a delicate situation. I remember I was calling Rebecca trying to get her to record all the way through the time Stuart had hospice in his home. These are these moments, you know, when you feel awful. But you just know. Do you just know? You lose sleep about, you know, should I call now? Should I try one last time to try to get something, something here to have Rebecca record? You have to remember me. You yeah. Know, calling. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I call that the loathsome task of doing that. Yeah. Did, you, did you think I was awful? No, no. Heartless? No, no, I didn't, because you were always very respectful. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that gave me a lot of confidence about working with you, is that, you know, you were always very respectful. Um, I knew that you had known somebody who'd gone through this experience, so I, you knew kind of what was going on, or at least could understand that. And, um, you know, I felt a little pressure, but it wasn't, like, overwhelming. I think, you know, in the end, I felt confident putting you off to a certain degree just because it just wasn't the right time. But by nature, those situations, you're at complete opposite, you know, cross purposes yes. where you, the producer, wants this to be documented yes. and you want your private life. Yeah. And that happens a lot. Yeah. And it's, you know, as, as you say, my Beth, it's a very tricky thing to, like, how much do you want to be this, um, you know, documenting grim reaper right. of... of you know, public radio. Right. And there's, I mean, there's the, and for me, there was a competing emotion going on. One was that I didn't know what was on those tapes, mm -hmm. but I did want to have my side of the story told. I did want that other perspective to be told. And, um, you know, there was a part of me that wanted to sit down and keep an audio diary, but I just, I just couldn't for whatever reason. So I think it just, you know, worked a lot better for me to have those, um, those, the questions from you and to hear your voice and to have the conversation, uh, that was much better than being alone with a tape recorder. That was Rebecca Peterson, who collaborated with producer Mary Beth Kirshner on a documentary about her husband Stewart's last year of life. 
Mary Beth and Rebecca sat down with moderator Joe Richmond to discuss the long and delicate process of documenting such a painful and difficult experience. Here, Mary Beth describes one of the first interviews she did with Rebecca about a year after Stewart's death. Something happened in the first 30 seconds of that interview that has never happened to me before that I wanted to play for you. Oh, this is very strange. Great audio equipment. So yeah, we're, we're rolling right now. So. Okay. I'm putting my feet up on the... <laughs> I'm relaxing here. That's it. Yeah, really. That's it. I have never... <laughs> I have never in 25 years of doing this have anyone ever say they wanted to put their feet up. <laughs> I just knew that there was something in that moment that said to me... She's relaxed. She's relaxing. She's settling in. There's some. There's something. What's going on? She's putting her feet up. She had never done this. All this other stuff was very foreign, but that was to me. I always remember that moment. No, I, I did feel comfortable. I did. I guess I was just ready to tell that story, and you know, it has something to do with the timing of what else. You know, other things that were going on in my life. Right. And. Um, the other piece of this, and you heard it in the story, but it happens in the first 10 minutes of that conversation where you just think, well, where do we begin? Do we start by playing this tape? And I just said, you know, I haven't talked to you in such a long time. Just tell me what's happening now. What are you doing? How are you? Whatever. And she started to tell me right away, which totally, again, kind of turned me upside down and made me think, okay, something's happening here, about this story of meeting your old boyfriend. Mm -hmm. It came out instantly, uh, almost for 10 minutes, the story of meeting him and how it had changed her life and how it enabled her to have this love for her husband that she'd never had. Mm -hmm. And I knew at that moment that there was probably an openness and honesty. You know that, I hope you all know that feeling of when you're just so in love. It's like every day, every neuron, every pore in your body is ready, you know, just to talk, to expose, to whatever. And that's the moment where she was. And I don't think had I talked to her two months before, mm -hmm. or maybe six months after, it was just that moment where she was... I think it was, yeah, it was uniquely at that moment where I was... Um putting together this whole, because you, like most people know, that feeling of falling in love and, you know, walking 10 feet above the ground and all that kind of stuff. I was thinking it made me remember what that was like with Stuart and everything good about the relationship that had sort of gotten really buried under that last year, the weight of that last year, was popping back up. And that was wonderful, and it was awful. Wonderful because I could remember that again and awful because then I had to grieve that again but you know it was um it was it was a unique moment I have to say probably and then the stories that followed it was kind of like once we had connected and we don't we never we didn't know each other really at all but once we'd connected at that level instantly it was a way to talk about anything after that and at the end of that conversation I remember thinking, Shh, you know, you are among the bravest of the brave people I've ever talked to. Hmm. These are the kind of stories that people die and never tell anybody. You know, maybe their therapist or their priest or nobody. And uh, I will never forget that. Um, yeah. 
But Rebecca did remind me, do you remember this, when we were done, mm -hmm. that basically nobody knew what we had talked about. So here we had this tape, you know, that was intended for national broadcast. And like, who knew? You said you talked to a therapist, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe your best friend. <clears throat> right. And nobody else knew any of these stories about Stuart or herself mm -hmm. or the boyfriend, right? Nobody right. knew any right. of this. Right, yes. So there we sat. <laughs> Me on the phone in L.A., Rebecca in the studio in Minnesota thinking, now what do we do? Yeah. Nobody knows this, right? Right, and I was worried. I mean, I was worried on a lot of different levels. A, that, you know, like none of his family knew about my new relationship, that, you know, how is this going to make him look? How is it going to make me look? How does it make us look at a family? You know, it's like, it just, you know, it felt like walking out the door naked. I mean, it was, it was too overwhelming at that point. And so producer Mary Beth Kirshner and collaborator Rebecca Peterson waited another year before they finished their documentary. In that year, Rebecca grieved, told Stewart's family about her new boyfriend, and adjusted to the idea of telling her story publicly. It was the notion that she could help others in similar situations that finally convinced her to move ahead. I wanted to be useful to people in other ways. I mean, uh, it's kind of like what I was thinking is the audio equivalent of driving by a car accident on the highway, and you look and you think, oh my God, you know, thank God that wasn't me. I didn't want it to be the audio equivalent of that, and I wanted it to do some good for people, hopefully. I mean, that was, the, in my own mind, the only way I could really justify putting myself out there like that um, and taking the risk with the family. And we both felt that way. That was the only reason to really get in the middle of all this in the first place. Yeah. I think we felt that there was this, that the, what was new about this was that kind of raw, really deep, deep honesty about the far from idyllic last year. That's what felt unusual and, um, and very, very real and true. And I, and I think personally, when you emerge from this process, uh, that's, it, it, that, that's the lasting thing that you feel like you can say in my own work. Um, did it work? Was it right? Was it worth the time? Was it worth the airtime? And uh, if you can say it was true, really deeply true, uh, that's, I think, the best thing you can say. Mary Beth Kirshner and Rebecca Peterson, discussing their collaboration on Kirshner's documentary, A Year to Live, A Year to Die. The discussion was moderated by independent producer Joe Richman. Did I wake you up? Say good morning. How did you sleep tonight? Did you hear the thunder? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. When a story moves you, be so moved as to send us an email about it. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. The aftermath of someone's death is difficult and unpredictable. Always there's the question of who and what is left behind. 
Producer Sue Mel first met painter Marion Tima in 1975 in college. When Mary died in 2002, she left behind a body of work cloistered away in her mother's house in New Jersey. Unearthing the paintings unearthed memories of the artist, her work, and her untimely death in our next story, What Remains. Well, this is actually very exciting to see this because... Uh, your pattern for her decorative art. Oh, oh this is pretty. Look, look, look at this. These cool. are her... Uh, oh, wow, oh, look at this. Wow. Can I see that one? Yeah. Oh, dear. Those are beautiful. There's so many beautiful things. Marble or tile, mosaics, wood, you name it. She could give you the illusion that you wanted. She would finish a very long day, maybe being up on a platform painting walls, and um, then she would go home and paint. And her apartment in Brooklyn was just kind of a work in progress. It was just this cheap little railroad apartment that had linoleum floors, and she made this, like, Roman mosaic on them. And it took her a month or longer to do it. And then she'd work on her own painting late at night. You know, artificial light, memory, and <laughs> that's how she did it. I was, I came to New York to be influenced by what I saw. I, th I feel like Mary arrived here, she was already fully formed. You know, she knew who she was. You know, Mom, I left the scissors on the bed or on the, yeah, here we go. I think this is it. Wow. Now these are these are wonderful pieces, and particularly if you if you uh, were familiar with the area, it'd be a lot of fun to have something like this. I don't know. Is that New Mexico? No, 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 no. no. That's New England. Yeah, is definitely it? New England. I think Mary was always an intimist. You think of Vermeer as an intimist. Vuillard in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century was an intimist. Someone who could grasp the intimate space that he or she was involved in. And I think almost from the beginning, Mary was that and stayed kind of as, as that. I remember when she was working for Dick Haas, I guess she had some of her watercolors and maybe some prints, but they were in like a portfolio. And she said I could have, stupidly said I could have anything I wanted. And it was like some ridiculous sum of money, like hundred bucks. So I flipped through this thing and there's this watercolor of um, a landscape and it's all slate grays and blues and it's just serene and beautiful. And she said, well, it's New Jersey. Well, you look at this thing, it's not New Jersey. It's some like magical thing. Well, she clearly edited quite lavishly. But she was looking at New Jersey and painted this wonderful thing. And I just love it. It's like having a, a lake on my, on my wall. As she got more into travel in exotic places, she probably had a harder time with that. Didn't quite know how to take in the vastness, say, of Kenya. But, you know, there was always some thing she could grab onto, even there, that connected to that, that need for an intimate connection. And then I think when she finally landed in one place that she could really could relate to, it all came back together in a, in a way that both took in, you know, the vast kind of space that she was also interested in, but saw it with this very particular eye. And the watercolors are down on the... They're down in the, in the case here. Okay. They don't take as much space. <laughs> you 
here are two cases of watercolor. My, my chief intent was to be able to preserve everything. And so I didn't really go through it or... In the first place, it was too painful to go through it. Yeah, I would imagine. I think everybody universally told her she should show her work. I think it was in the early 80s. She had been living in the East Village and was just moving to Brooklyn, and she did a cityscape, a skyline, of red brick buildings in Brooklyn with bright blue sky. And it was accepted in a juried show in Brooklyn Museum, and I think she won a prize. And that's the only show I think she's, she'd ever been in. She'd said that she wanted, uh, she was looking for a particular showing situation. You know, she wanted all the work to be together, and she was very particular about uh, the way she would show it. People assume you're trying to hustle some place in the world or get it out there or whatever, and that was never, you know, almost to a fault. It was never something she worried about. She was collecting, you know, she was <clears throat> she was trying to amass for a show, and uh, she just didn't make it to it. Oh, the whole staff. Oh, wow. wow. So much work. Whoa, that's Hmm. Keep saying that. No, it but they beautiful. are. They are. That's so beautiful. And that looks like upstate New York. And this is up near uh, where she died, yeah. In 2002, right after the 4th of July, Mary had taken a trip up to the Adirondacks to see her boyfriend, George. And an acquaintance of George's killed both of them in cold blood in his cabin by a lake. A neighbor saw his pickup truck in the driveway, and then the lights were on for two days in the cabin, and nothing changed, so he went to investigate and found their bodies. And when the police went to interview the guy with the pickup truck, he appeared with a shotgun, and they had a shootout, and the police shot him to death. So we'll never really know what the motive was. You you wonder, I, I wonder, you know, what would she have done had she had had more time? I mean, it, it's almost an automatic that you wonder about that. And yet, uh, I feel she completed something, you know, even in the time she was uh, working. Wow. wow, look at that. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, yeah, that, that, well, that was a, a presentation for somebody's dining room. Uh-huh. I mean, that's amazing. That's like having one of her paintings like, right al- there, alive right. in your house. She's <laughs> willing to paint it right on your wall. Did you ever see any of the houses that she painted? Yes, yes. I, I went and um, I helped her with a couple of places, actually. It was fun, you know. We'd go into these, like a Trump Tower type of place up on the east side, and um, you know, you'd go into this six-room apartment, and she'd start painting the walls. She painted for, you know, the um, producer of uh, Saturday Night Live. Lorne Michaels. Lorne Michaels, yeah. She painted his whole apartment. She painted Rush Limbaugh's apartment. She was painting columns and all sorts of things in his apartment. And then there was this massive storm and the window blew in or something and there was a flood and it was all undone. She found that hilarious. I first, I think, went and talked to my then dealer who was I was just beginning to have a, a rapport with. He looked at them, he was very taken by them, and, but he said he just couldn't do anything with someone whose career 
had sort of come and gone and it was very finite. He didn't see how commercially he could deal with it, you know. After she died and I had gone to see her parents and looked at all the paintings, I thought it was so tragic that these paintings would just sit in the closet. So I thought maybe Bennington could have an exhibit of them. And there was a woman in the office who said she'd take it to the committee, and then shortly afterwards she went on maternity leave, and that's the last I heard. So that was probably two or three years ago. And maybe there's still the possibility of doing this. It would be nice if we could. If I picture her, and there's probably a canvas set up somewhere in my mind immediately, a cigarette, <laughs> a bottle of wine, <laughs> and a, a canvas. And that was just, that was her. I think we've come to the end. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So beautiful. They are just incredible. I had yeah. no idea that they were, that was that much beauty locked up in those cases. Yeah. Which have been sitting in that closet for so long. My heavens, it's like an explosion. You know, you wonder how that happens in someone. Where they find, how they, how they find to see those things when they look at, when they look at a landscape, and then to put it down. She wanted the world as it is, more beautiful than most of us remember it. What Remains was produced by Sue Mel for Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson at WNYC. And now another story about What Remains, a family caught up in the aftermath of Alzheimer's disease, paying homage to the past while still investing in the future. Here's Lost and Found Love by Dan Gorenstein. Wake up, I'm here. Give me a kiss. Jim has had about five years to get used to this Anne, the one who can't walk or talk, let alone laugh or share. But he insists she can recognize him. Everyone will will tell you that when she sees me, her eyes light up. She knows it's me. And she'll even smile if I tell her about the kids. Remember your kiddies? Do you remember them? Remember your kiddies? You had Rosemary, Carol, Jimmy, Catherine, Irene, and Annie. Remember all those babies and everything you did for them? You did a lot of stuff with your babies. Anne doesn't seem to respond, except for the breathing. Now, how much does she know? She knows I'm here. That's the major thing. It makes me sad to see her... So helpless. Like when, she, when she's just sitting here, it isn't so bad she's sitting here. But when she's there, just opening her mouth and eating, she can't, she can't pick up a fork or a spoon or a cup or anything. So it, it is against my memory of a vital woman. Okay, where am I going to sit at? Probably here is good, I think. Huh? Jim's trips usually last a little more than an hour. We head back to his house. As we pull up, I notice the well-tended gardens that surround the place. Tools resting against a fence suggest long mornings and afternoons digging, pulling, and planting. 
kayaks hang in the backyard. We're home! Okay. Good talking. Right this here. is Nancy. She's the woman Jim has lived with the past four years. 78-year-old Jim Graham and 69-year-old Nancy Corvette happily report they live a life full of activity and intimacy. And we cuddle up in bed and have a lovely time. <laughs> Wait, well, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> My God, people are going to know we're cuddling up. <laughs> it's not a relationship either ever expected. Jim did everything he could to keep his wife, Anne, by his side. His son, Jimmy, says even after Ann moved into the nursing home, his father remained devoted. My dad was spending all day, every day, at the nursing home. All day. He took courses to become a certified nursing assistant because he felt like, she took care of me all these years. I'm going to take care of her. Nobody's going to give her a bath. I can do all that. You begin to get lonesomer and lonesomer. You're just sitting around by yourself, really, at night. There's a lot of things that you don't like to do by yourself, like go to theater, all of that. You feel funny when you go. Jim began to notice Nancy at the nursing home. She was visiting her partner of 10 years, Pete. Pete had developed what she called a galloping kind of Alzheimer's. Not many caregivers go into the nursing home on a regular basis. And both Jim and I did, and we'd start talking to each other. I recognize an awful lot of things a woman generally doesn't know how to do in the house. I needed bookcases taken down off the wall, so I finally said, would you come and do it, please? He said, sure. Bookshelves led to more talking, which led to Jim asking Nancy out. It's like 46 or 47 years since the last time I asked a girl out. (laughs) Talk about feeling like a 15-year-old kid. (laughs) So she said yes. (laughs) And then I panicked. We went out for dinner, and he brought me back to the house, and we got out of the car, and then you say, now what? I'm a grown woman, and I've been married before, and I have had a companion, but... Now what? So Jim gave me a little kiss, and I said, oh, isn't that nice? My dad never said I've started dating this woman. He just wouldn't be home a lot. My sisters and I started saying, have you talked to Dad? Where's Dad? I haven't talked to him. I don't know where he is. Jim and Ann's daughter, Annie, says her dad did enter his new life a bit reluctantly. He did ask me, you know, what do you think about her? I know he really wanted approval, and... I, I think he was concerned that we would we would all feel very angry that he was turning his back on mom. It was not something you just wanted to do cavalier after you've been married 47 years, even if she doesn't understand, you know. Jim says Anne always worried other women were after him, and he says he knows she wouldn't approve of his relationship, but he set those concerns aside. And in a sense, I didn't rationalize it. What I did was, out of just my heart set it, all right? I need a hug. I did. (laughs) You need some contact with people. Things turned serious between Nancy and Jim. A few months after Pete passed away, the couple decided to live together. Nancy knew Jim was still married, but she says that was fine. For me, knowing how Pete was in the end and having seen Anne, these are bodies that we're taking care of still, but they don't have a mind. It's almost like he's, he's not really married any longer. He's just taking care of someone. Even so, Nancy told Jim to tell Anne what was happening. So I go in to talk to Anne and tell Anne. I said, I've met this woman, you know her, Nancy. And uh, Nancy and I are we're going out and having d- dinners. And uh, I'm going to start to move into Nancy's house. But it didn't explain it to her. She, she knows I'm holding a hand. She's happy with that. 
Almost everyone has supported Nancy and Jim's arrangement. Jim feels he hasn't broken his vow in sickness and in health till death do you part. In his mind, he's found a way to separate the life he has with Anne from the one he shares with Nancy. He draws lines that make sense to him. For example, he says, he would never kiss Nancy in front of Anne, but he also invited Nancy to his 50th wedding anniversary party at the nursing home. Nancy declined. I don't feel it intrudes in the sense that because Nancy was there, Anne wouldn't know Nancy's there or not. I think Nancy's part of our family now, and she should be part of what we do. While Jim is at ease with the two worlds he's created, it leaves Nancy feeling a little lost. I tell him that I love him, and I do love him. I'm not sure how he feels about me. He gives me wonderful cards on my birthday, and on, and he brings me flowers a lot. And he, he doesn't wear his emotions. I don't know how he compares me to Anne. I've never asked him. I would never ask him either. Am I better than Anne? Am I worse than Anne? Do you love me more than Anne? Do you love me less than Anne? That's not important to me. The important to me thing to me is that he's here, and we're here, and we're having a really good time together. At 78, Jim hopes he gets another decade of days and nights with Nancy. But Jim says he remains committed to the woman he married in 1956. Nancy is, if you can't, you want to call it, it's icing on the cake, all right? But you don't take, well, 45 years maybe of good married life and all the stuff we've been through, the kids and all everything, the economics and all that. You don't just pass that away. I think I'll be buried with him. Nancy accepts Jim's final request. My life has been so jumbled all the way along that I'm happy to be where I am right now. You know, I've had very sad times in my life, so this is as good as it gets for me, and that's fine. Nancy reminds herself she is the envy of all her single friends. Jim's the first to say how lucky he is to be with Nancy, and for both of them, the compromises they've had to make are all right. Lost and Found Love was produced by Dan Gorenstein for NPR's Day to Day. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production assistant is Delaney Hall. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.